Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. We want our boys to understand masculinity and we want our boys to have specific strategies to choose their own brand of masculinity. Stay tuned. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-host, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net, and I'm Janet Allison of boysalive.com. Thank you for being our listeners, and thank you for supporting our sponsors. On this podcast, we've discussed and defined masculinity, what it is, what it isn't. Today, we're going to focus on some specific action steps that we can all take to help our sons determine their own unique definition of what it means to be a man. I've read our guest's book cover to cover, and it is different. They have been writing for and about men for over a decade, so they're well-positioned to describe the challenges of current-day ideas of masculinity, and that for boys and men in this rapidly shifting world of trying to figure out what it means to be a man, it can seem that there are only two options left, pretend not to notice what's happening or get angry about what's happening. Thankfully, our guest, Alex Manley, has given us another option. Their book, The New Masculinity, A Roadmap for a 21st Century Definition of Manhood, is filled with specific ways to guide our boys to understanding their place in this new landscape in a way that recognizes who they are and who they want to be and how they can and must step outside of the very outdated man box. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So good to have you. Oh my gosh, this book. Wow. I circled so many phrases and so many lines. There's stars and there's circles and there's underlines because there's so many important points that you've said. But I'm always curious when somebody takes the time to write a book, what the inspiration was. So as you noted uh, in your intro, I've been writing uh, about and for men for a very long time. I came out as non-binary in 2019, so about three and a half years ago. I was assigned male at birth, and I thought of myself as a boy and as a man for much of my life, in large part because, you know, there wasn't really any other options, you know, and and Mm -hmm. looking back, I I even found places uh, in letters or whatever, writing to friends where I was like, I don't know if I exactly feel like a man, but I don't feel like a woman. So, you know, I don't really know what the options are for me. So non-binariness wasn't really something that I felt that, that I knew existed, but I just knew that for a long time, I had a kind of complicated relationship with masculinity and And meanwhile you're going through the world with a last name of manly yes exactly which just seems like that i mean Mm -hmm. no pressure there i'm sure Sure, that exactly 
<laughs> and I get into that a little bit in the book, just that, you know, people uh, throughout my life would see me and, and kind of comment like, oh, you don't come across as very manly. Isn't that kind of ironic? One of the things that I learned was that lots of men, even, you know, who aren't non-binary at all, but like very cis men, very like even, you know, manly or masculine men also struggle with masculinity. They also feel kind of uncomfortable with it. They also feel like they're living up to uh, an ideal or a standard that doesn't match, you know, their lived experience. They feel like, you know, they're always trying to be someone they're not exactly, or they're, they're never able to sort of tap into the real kind of human feelings that we all feel and, and feelings of vulnerability and uncertainty and, and just stuff that sort of defines being a person. And so while I was working at Ask Men, the digital publication where I got hired in 2013 as a copy editor, and I slowly sort of started writing a bit more uh, and I became an assigning editor. So it was my job to work with the freelance writers um, and sort of help determine what the content on the site was. And I could tell that there was an opportunity for us to kind of help put forward a healthier vision of masculinity. You know, I had a lot of female friends, people who are near and dear to my heart, who were talking to me about their experiences with men and, you know, particularly in a, in a dating and a romantic context. And there was just this sense of like, men right now seem to be very confused, seem to be struggling, I guess. There's a sense that they don't know who they are. They're trying to be something that they can't be. They're between a sort of classic traditional version of masculinity that the rest of the world is, is kind of starting to reject and a, a future that is maybe different from that in ways that they feel uncomfortable about, but that hasn't really been fully defined. Yes. And as a writer, I was just sort of like, I think there's a book here, <laughs> you know, at a certain <laughs> point about five years ago, I was like, I love writing these articles and editing these articles for Ask Men on this topic, but maybe there needs to be a book. Maybe I should write that book. And kind of what you're saying too, and you you pointed this out early on in the book, is that figuring out who you are, figuring out masculinity is so much based on the negative. Like mm. boys, don't cry. Don't mm -hmm. do this. Don't mm -hmm. do that. And I love how you framed your chapter titles in in that way. Of, mm -hmm. um, just for instance, like the first chapter is a real man doesn't get friend zoned mm -hmm. and you've crossed out a real man doesn't. Mm -hmm. And it is about get friend zoned. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like you're giving permission for all these places where the sands mm. are shifting mm -hmm. and so I'd love for you just to like dive in I've got all these phrases that I pulled out of a book it's like I can <laughs> yeah. say one phrase and I bet he could talk for 40 minutes on that one <laughs> phrase and what you do in the book is give concrete like do this you need to have female friends the importance of that and why so start there so much of that chapter came from an essay that I wrote for Ask Men in 2018 for a little editorial feature we produced where I, I got a bunch of my favorite writers for the website together. And we did something called uh, Detox, which was 10 or so articles about detoxifying masculinity because the concept of toxic masculinity had just kind of hit the mainstream. Everyone mm. was talking about, you know, is max masculinity toxic? And so I just wanted a bunch of smart people to write different things about masculinity, you know, in 2018. 
And what I wanted to write about was just sort of my relationship. And and this was, again, before I came out as non-binary, before I'd really uh, developed maybe a clearer understanding of my own gender stuff. But I knew that a big part of my relationship to masculinity was that unlike everyone else who had grown up as a boy uh, around me, for me, the idea of being friends with women was never off the table. And not only was it sort of not off the table, but it was a big part of my life. And I felt like I had learned so much from my female friends over the years. And I had had all these experiences and that it had given it had, had given me so much. It had helped me grow in so many interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And to think that there were people out there, there were lots and lots of, of boys out there who were cutting themselves off from that possibility based on sort of cultural scripts and, mm-hmm. you know, advice from people. And there was actually sort of working against their best interests was really heartbreaking to me. So I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of write about my experience with being friends with women and also to think about what that would look like in the lives of, of other people who are sort of socialized as boys what that would look like for other young men and boys Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the ways that it would help change their perspectives on various social issues and hopefully themselves as well. Because I feel like our friendships are, are such a big part of who we are, you know, and that might not be the case as we get older, but especially when we're younger, who you socialize with as a kid and how that informs your future socialization can be such a big part of who you become. Yeah, so really encouraging our boys. I mean, it's like there's this early elementary, everybody's Mm -hmm. friends with everybody. By middle school, it kind of starts to separate. And, you know, it's like, what's the girl you're attracted to? And then it's all about dating. And we kind of forget that there is this whole range of friendships that can be had. And I mean, I would say even in adult life being a single woman in adult life it's just not quite in the mainstream of you can be friends with men it's often couple friendships and Mm -hmm. and as you said in the book you know it's the woman is typically doing the social arrangements Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. making that those things happen and Mm -hmm. you're really encouraging boys and men like you've got to tend to your social life (laughs) yeah absolutely because you know and and this is one of the places where I was like the data on this is is irrefutable you know just like when you have an active social life your life is better and you're likely to live longer you know Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. can't think of anyone who wants to have a worse shorter life and yet and boys every day sort of find themselves making choices that I mean boys maybe less so but but certainly men every day find themselves making choices that can contribute to these sort of more negative outcomes. Part of this book was kind of trying to fight back against these self-destructive impulses or Mm -hmm. or these impulses that men might not realize are bad for them, but actually are. And thinking like, how much better would their lives be if they could let go of some of these kind of mental constraints that they have? Mm Um, and how much better would everyone else's lives be if me- if the men in their lives were happier and healthier and more in touch with themselves and their feelings? There's been increasing attention lately to loneliness as a social mm-hmm. problem and specifically for males. And I don't have the data right in front of me, but just recently some more data came out showing like the decline in the number of close friends mm-hmm. that, that males say today versus, uh, you know, say the 60s or even 20 years ago. I'm wondering, and you maybe 
can or can't answer this. <laughs> it also seems like in this time frame, the cost of living has gone up drastically. Parenting has become an all-consuming thing. So whereas people used to have time to participate in things like, I don't know, the 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 Kiwanis Club or a bowling <laughs> league sure. or something at church, it, so many people feel like they just don't even have time where am i supposed to fit friendship into this it sounds great but i can't afford friendship you know obviously i think this book is sort of written against the backdrop not just of of shifting gender roles but also sort of other shifts in in the society that we, that we live in culture uh and and the one you're talking to which is i guess sort of economic shifts um mm -hmm. You know, and I think like that's valid. You know, I'm certainly not immune to those forces. I don't think any of us are. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's something that I sort of really tried to push back against in the book, just in terms of like, yeah, we do live more lonely and sort of sadder lives. I guess it can feel like, how do I make room for this? How do I figure this out? And for me, part of uh, of what this book was about was saying like, well, you kind of have to because like the cost of not doing this is a lot more than, than the cost mm -hmm. of doing this. It, it's a question of kind of balancing your short-term and your long-term perspectives. It might in the short-term seem like, oh, it's, you know, it's a lot of work to do this, or it might be stressful to be vulnerable with a friend, or, you know, it might be, uh, I don't know, like it might be not fun to, to settle for friendship when what you wanted was a relationship or whatever, but like mm -hmm. the long-term benefits of taking on these actions that I'm talking about uh, often vastly outweigh the short-term negatives. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's why I think they're worth going into. You make that point really clearly in the chapter about mental health yeah. as well. Like, sure, it's easier in the short term to not deal with my stuff. And that's true for everybody. But the long term consequences can be pretty costly, pretty negative. And as you're saying this, it occurs to me that, you know, here's a role that we as parents, educators, we can help boys and young men look at this bigger context. Because, I mean, you know this as you know, a former child and, and teenager, when you're a teenager, like, I don't know what happens next year seems forever away, much less what happens in five years or 10 years. I think the book is for me, like I wrote it, I guess, for I would say like 18 to 25 year olds. So mm -hmm. it's maybe shading out a little bit of, of the teenagers. Uh, I think a lot of what's in there is very much applicable to young boys throughout their teens and maybe even before that, depending. Well, on... and I want to encourage parents to read this of young boys, you know, because they need mm -hmm. to know, like, as Jen said, what's out there five years, right. 10 years. Exactly. I want to guide my my son to what well, you have a chapter on music and mm -hmm. pointing out that are they listening to female artists? Mm -hmm. Is it a blend? Is it balanced? And that's a mm -hmm. question and a place where parents can kind of step in early and ask the questions. Mm. Like, are all your choices male or are there some female? So looking at that, you, you've got a great chapter about that. And how Yeah. And I mean, look, like I was a product of, of a, an environment where like, I wouldn't say either my parents are sexist. They both have fairly progressive ideas about, uh, about gender and, They've both been sort of so supportive of uh, not just my coming out as non-binary, but also like the work that I've done over the years in terms of like looking into masculinity and thinking about it. Still do feel like I 
just because of, of the culture that we live in. I grew up in a house where I was definitely consuming like a lot more art by men, you know, because there's more art by men sort of mm-hmm. in the world, you know, every year when the Oscar, uh, the Oscars give like best director uh, to, to a man again, and you're sort of like, oh, like, you know, three women have ever won this or whatever. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff is always, I don't know, I, for me, it's a jumping off point of like, okay, like, who is telling the stories that we surround ourselves by? Because that has such an impact on how people think. And I've heard so many stories of like, oh, we tried to raise our kids gender neutral, but you, you know, our daughter saw a Disney movie and now she wants to be a princess. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, yeah. so what that tells us is like stories are powerful. So like thinking about the stories that we surround ourselves with, the stories that we kind of are kind of take for granted, but are breathing in or whatever that, you know, that can be a really useful avenue to thinking about how people come to see their gender, how people come to see other people's gender, how people come to see gender generally, and how important it is to them, how, how they feel like, oh, like, I'm a boy, that person on screen is a boy, he's acting this way. So it's appropriate for me to uh, act this way. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff is something that I feel like we haven't really thought about enough yet as a culture. Stay tuned after a short message from our sponsors for more about how we all are consuming the stories of popular culture. Listeners, I know that you sometimes feel like your home is bursting with the boundless energy of your boys. Mine has been for a very long time. We want to tell you about Home Threads, where style meets the wild adventures of raising boys. At HomeThreads.com, you can find a collection of uh, furniture and home accessories designed to meet the needs of your growing boy family. They have everything from durable bunk beds to upscale gaming tables. You can turn your home into an attractive, durable playground, believe it or not. Uh, Janet and I both love their baking dishes. Solid, beautiful, functional. Anything you need for your home, you can likely find on HomeThreads.com, and we have a discount code for you. Go to HomeThreads.com slash OnBoys. You can get a code for 15% off your first order, because every leap, laugh, and loud moment deserves a space that embraces the chaos with style. HomeThreads, love where you live. Yeah, as you're talking, I mean, the the director that comes to the top of my mind is Steven Spielberg. And look at the movies that, I mean, he's got a, a range of movies, but it's still, it's Star Wars, it's action, it's that kind of story. And mm-hmm. then, you know, you hear the female directors are, oh, she's got one movie or two movies. And um, <laughs> so it's that. And it's, it as you said, it's just like, we just need to wake up to that of who mm-hmm. is who is feeding us the stories and ask Mm. the questions around that. And part of this too came out in the chapter about the bro culture. Bro culture (laughs) is a monoculture. Talk Mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So what I tried to get into in that that chapter was just the the recognition that, as you said, like the, the monoculture is a culture that's always kind of in danger, I guess, because, you know, if you don't have any diversity, this is true <laughs> in nature as well. You're, you're sort of fragile, you're vulnerable. And I sort of 
talk about this through the lens of of the frats mm-hmm. as being bro culture, you know, taken to its extreme or whatever. But just the idea that if you put only guys in a room or only straight guys or only cis guys or only like, you know, white guys or whatever, or 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 the room is mostly that kind of person. And, you know, anyone who's not every one of those attributes is sort of a little bit of an outsider, then that ends up becoming, I don't know, just just likely to produce kind of outcomes that privilege those kind of people over everyone else you know when you have a room that's a bit more diverse you can end up with a much more democratic and a much more interesting and a much more balanced uh kind of group viewpoint that doesn't necessarily that where it's not as easy for kind of unhealthy attitudes and unhealthy behaviors to take root and to kind of spread it's tricky i think because there has been some conversation and I have I have seen sort of some of the people who are trying to create a healthy, you know, new version of masculinity saying like, we do need all male spaces just for guys to kind of talk through what it's like mm-hmm. to be a guy. And I'm sympathetic to that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also important that not all of a guy's spaces are all male spaces, you know, and that he feels comfortable being in spaces where he's maybe in the minority, you know, because like for white men, that's very rarely the case in our culture. You know, they're, they're so used to being in spaces where they feel comfortable. And then other people, women and people of color and queer people and and disabled people are so often used to being in the minority in, in a given room. And that totally changes you know, how comfortable you feel, how you feel articulating your true thoughts, how likely you are to kind of rise up the ranks or whatever, if if that's a, a thing. So that chapter is definitely an attempt to kind of interrogate the, the ways that having too much of one thing can definitely be problematic. Guys can just end up in these situations where they're hearing their own perspective kind mm-hmm. of spoken mm-hmm. back to them and reinforced. Yeah. I like how you framed that just now as kind of a moderation thing Mm. because I do think especially for young men in this age group 18 to 25 you say you're talking to you know these are guys that have come up in the the past 20 years or so where there has been a lot of shifts in our culture and Mm -hmm. shifts regarding our expectations or experiences of gender and like Mm -hmm. I don't know what you want me to be and there's (laughs) some you know frustration and confusion and so I do think for some of them, you know, they gravitate to other guys just to be like, can I actually say what I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. all of this here? And that can be healthy, as you said. Mm -hmm. And when that is all that you experience, it can become an echo chamber, which can be dangerous. So there's need sometimes to be with people that are like you in a lot of ways. But when that is your whole world, that's stifling. And that's what we're seeing with social media. Your feed is all the things that you're already familiar with, that feel comfortable, that have the same philosophy that you're developing, and you don't see the different perspectives. It's interesting. I've had some um, interesting conversations about that recently. So as we're recording this, it is... uh, Shortly after Bud Light got in the news for their their can and their partnership with Dylan Mulvaney, who is a trans person. And listen, I grew up in the 80s. So a can with like hearts and rainbows and and cool writing, I just think is cool aesthetically. Not all beer drinkers agree. Um, And (laughs) 
And I've had conversations with my 20-year-old son, Alex. And partly one of the things that we realize in when we talk about things is we see very different things on social media mm-hmm. because of who we are and who we tend to follow. And we also have, you know, different interests. So we compare like what he's seeing in his mm-hmm. feed and what I'm seeing in my feed. Because if you're only looking at one It's easy to think, well, everybody's applauding this or everybody's shooting up their Bud Light cans. And it's a little bit of each and a whole lot of people who are like in the middle going, sure, drink whatever you want. Right. Sure. Like there's so many more important things in the world right now than, you know, who is or isn't sponsoring, but, you know, Bud Light. (laughs) I I think that's fascinating also just from the perspective of like, you know, I, I grew up in Canada in Montreal, which is a very artsy city. And Bud Light for me has always been this very kind of American, like kind of tough, country beer or whatever you know (laughs) and it's like oh no Bud Light is the metropolitan progressive queer friendly beer and I'm just like my head spinning (laughs) but that's okay because they also just apparently released a commercial with the Clydesdales to say yes we're still your tough country beer yeah exactly I mean at the end of the day like marketing right exactly it's marketing they're trying to they're trying to make their their beer sell to as many people as they can and they're they're just trying to you know walk the tightrope with that but coming back to the echo chamber thing i this feels like it could be sort of seemingly contradictory the important thing i guess about an, an all-male space that's healthy or one that's useful and necessary like you said to be around people who are like you as opposed to uh, uh sort of in these more diverse spaces is just are you capable of being vulnerable in that space? Is it a space Mm. that is okay with vulnerability? Or is it a space that encourages everyone to put on their grow mask and and be tough and either, you know, explicitly or implicitly lie about like who they are and what they're Mm -hmm. going through? The all-male spaces that we associate with that kind of quote-unquote toxic masculinity, like the Mm -hmm. sort of golf country club or the you know the the frat house or whatever you know it's spaces where everyone's trying to like outdo each other and like Mm -hmm. one-up each other and show off how great they are and you know when I think about the spaces that are maybe more healthy I'm thinking about like a a group sort of therapy session or I'm thinking about like like a bunch of new dads getting together and talking about the reality of being uh you know a parent Mm -hmm. and the ways that it's changed their lives or whatever and those are situations where like what you're gaining from everyone around you being a guy is, you know, people who have been in similar situations with you uh, as you and and can speak to and understand what you're going through instead of there's this sense of like, oh, like, let's put down everyone who's not in this room or whatever. Yeah. It's, you know, how can we heal together? How can we be together? Mm-hmm. So I think part of the challenge that we face culturally is just sort of getting guys to shift towards those kind of more healthy spaces where it's like, okay, like this is a space where we can be vulnerable together and we can explore like what it is we're struggling with as opposed to uh, the opposite, which is far too often the case. I'm still going back to this shift in maybe it's middle school, but the shift in boys being so close and being able to be vulnerable with each other. Mm. And then all of a sudden the masks come up and the armor comes on and I can't tell my guy friend that I love them because, you know, Mm -hmm. then you're gay or, and that's just, I mean, 
pretty universal. So then the the armor comes up and I just want to be able to get into that age group and keep that tender door open. Yeah. But as a parent, it's like you're fighting against society and that bro culture that's in the Mm. locker room. It's it's there. Like you said, you're fighting against society. You know, like I think there's this perception that like parents have such an impact on kids but it's also true that like you know as soon as they go out the door they're picking up messaging they're picking up ideas and kids are so smart like however they're doing in school like they can tell the social dynamics of a situation they can tell when like oh i've done something that i shouldn't have done everyone's judging me for it they can tell like oh like you know boys are supposed to do this and girls are supposed to do this apparently according to everyone around me so you know if i'm a boy then i better do you know the first thing and not the second thing and that's where i think our human need for connection sometimes is more powerful or we prioritize it over even our need for authenticity right Absolutely. like it's so painful to be alone or on the outside that i'm going to go along with this because i need people i think that's totally true and uh I don't know, I go back to my own childhood. I just remember this one instance, like I didn't really fit in. I didn't have a ton of friends. I get into this very lightly, I think, in the book. But mm-hmm. um, in elementary school, I think at some point, I remember having a conversation with my mom and she was like, well, you know, I remember her being like, I hate to say this, but I would rather you be getting bullied than be the bully. At least like there's, you're, you have the moral high ground, I think. And, you know, as, as much as it's tough to feel like you're on the outside, at least you're not a bad person. You're not making someone else's life miserable. You're not engaging in this kind of cruelty or whatever. But I do think that parents need to kind of sit with their kids in this case with with their boys and just say like, you know, you know that it's okay to be vulnerable. You know that it's okay to have feelings. You know that it's okay to cry when you're sad or whatever. And you are going to get this messaging that that's not true from other people. Sometimes you might need to hide that part of who you are in order to fit in, or you might feel the need to, but I want you to know that it will always be okay to be a person to, to, you know, to have feelings, to be vulnerable. Hopefully they'll, they'll be able to hear that, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, the messaging that they're getting outside may be louder or whatever, but hopefully uh, they'll be able to hear that coming from someone they love. And that's and a that. powerful message. You know, we as parents and as other concerned adults, aunts, uncles, coaches, educators, just people in the community, we can be a safe space for people to be who they are. Mm -hmm. And we can let them know that who they are, who you are, exactly who you are, fine. We see that, we value that. And yes, as our children navigate their social lives, they're going to feel pressure. And there may be times when they act in ways that are contrary to their authentic Mm -hmm. selves. There may Mm -hmm. be times when they act in ways that we are not pleased with in their efforts to fit in. I think we need to give them some compassion for that. You know, certainly talk about these things, mm-hmm. talk about them, call them out when you see them behaving in, you know, ways that are not aligned with your values. When you see them using slurs against other people, hold a little compassion in your heart because it is not easy mm-hmm. navigating all of this. Is it Alex? No. And I, I can only imagine that it's gotten harder since I was a kid. You know, like I I started using the internet around when I was 12 or so. Didn't get a cell phone until I was about 18. I didn't have a smartphone until my 20s. You know, like 
I can't imagine, uh, you know, I didn't have social media until, until, yeah, I was about 19 or so. Like, I can't imagine what it would be like going through as a 10, 11, 12 uh, year old dealing with, with the, the intensity of social media, the immediacy of all this stuff, the dynamics of, of school on steroids, you know, where there's, yeah. this, you know, all the possibility of like, who's cool, who's not, who's who's being accepted, who's being rejected. Did someone do something embarrassing that we're all going to focus on for a week or a month or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff is very fraught and, and, and terrifying seeming. Mm-hmm. I think. So much compassion. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Jen, as you were talking, I'm thinking about, you know, even as adults, we manage our behavior. We change, we shift as sure. depending on what group we're with and we kind of calibrate to the room. And so teaching that to our kids, like that is a thing that you're going to do when you're in the workplace, you're going to maybe be a little bit different than you are with your friends, but it's coming back always to that core. Who are you? You know, what are your values? We'll take a quick break. When we come back, find out what band-aids have to do with masculinity. Alex, I want you to talk about (laughs) band-aids your band-aid story because i I love this part that ties (laughs) into this too that is so perfect band-aids tell us absolutely so one of the chapters uh i believe starts with an anecdote from when i was in high school in gym class and another kid who i saw as being more sort of popular than me uh saw me sort of wearing a band-aid and asked like why are you wearing a band-aid to him it just seemed I guess superfluous or or like kind of a mark of vulnerability or or weakness or something and he kind of made fun of me uh for it a little bit and for me it hadn't you know like I'm I was coming from I don't know a household where there was nothing I didn't have to hide you know if something was wrong or I didn't have to hide uh, a weakness so it was confusing to me but it was one of those things where it's like oh yeah you 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 pick up messaging you know outside the home like this is what's okay this is what's not and he was sort of telling me like man up be tough you know like pretend that you're not injured or power through your injuries it was just a kind of like a really tiny encapsulation of this overarching theme uh that that runs through masculinity which is you cannot show weakness, you cannot show vulnerability. Uh, you have to pretend that you're great, that everything's fine. And in this specific chapter, basically, I explore how that is a killer when it comes to to men's health, because mm-hmm. in very real terms, if you spend your childhood uh, internalizing messages about being tough and playing through the pain and not being willing to admit that anything's wrong, that doesn't just magically go away when, say, you're later in life and your body starts doing things that you don't necessarily know how to respond to. Your body starts showing signs that something's wrong. And rather than looking for help, uh, you just go, okay, well, I'm going to be tough. Just the data shows men die a lot younger than women. And one of the culprits is they have a different relationship to getting treatment for stuff. As we're recording, the Washington Post came out with an article today about the silent crisis in men's health getting worse. And so as we're recording, the most recent data in the U.S. is a 5.9-year difference in life expectancy for males and females. And it's the largest gap in a quarter century. This gap has been getting larger. As the article points out, and as many of you listeners know, it's kind of ridiculous, especially because for years... So much of the medical research has been on men. So many of the providers are men. 
So it should be a system that is set up to take care of you guys. And yet, if we yeah. start with don't put a Band-Aid on it, it's pretty easy to see how things get ignored, overlooked, not tended to. I think it's one of those things that if you think about it for long enough, it starts feeling like, you know, it's a tragedy. We have sent men the wrong messages since they were born, basically. And then there are consequences to that. And there are lots of other factors going into the fact that they die younger, a lot of which I explore in the book. Mm -hmm. But the relationship to their bodies, to their physical health, to the concept of weakness or vulnerability is so important. And I'm like, you can't teach someone that weakness and vulnerability are bad and expect it to have no impact when they their bodies start to fail, as all of our bodies will. I found myself thinking about this for, for myself first the other day, but, you know, I am traveling through the world in this body. This is this is my vehicle. This is what yeah. I have. Yeah. yeah, I really should be taking good care of it. Like, <laughs> this is it. Yeah. And then I thought of that in terms of I have four sons who are in their teens and early 20s right now. They take care of their cars. Yeah. They take care of their dirt bikes. Like this is the stereotypically masculine thing. You know, if you've got a cool car, you mm. are out there buffing it, shining it, taking care of it, putting premium gas in it. How can we yeah. help make that connection and translation, Alex? I mean, you're fighting an uphill battle, as am I with my book. Um, but I do think, yeah, it starts with communicating that yourself and your body are not, I don't know, like are, are not a kind of narrative object as they are in, in masculinity, where it's like, oh, it has to be perfect. It has to be, you know, tough. It has to be strong. And rather just, yeah, okay, you're a person. There are things that are good. There are things that are bad. There are Things will go uh, go well and go poorly in your life without the pressure to kind of be like a, a superhero or whatnot. Um, yes. I think that completely like reinvents or, or, or could in any case reinvent the relationship that these boys have with their bodies as they become men and, you know, as they're as they start aging. So much of this seems like we all guys, we as parents, society need to make it okay give permission to boys to be human and i'm curious this is a question that i have been pondering myself lately and i'm not sure i have an answer so i would love to hear your thoughts on this is there a difference between being a decent human and being a good man uh, that's a fascinating question and i think it's one that i've thought about no small amount i do think What's fascinating, Ask Men's slogan, my employer, uh, is um, become a better man. And so just, you know, having that in the background of my professional career for the past decade, my ears perk up a little bit when I hear anyone talking about being a good man or a better man. Uh, and you hear it in songs and you see it in movies or whatnot, and you don't really see it for women. They think it's fascinating. No. <laughs> no, nobody's telling me to be a better. I mean, right, exactly. Yes, there are like, the unspoken messages like being right. a better woman, you know, take care of your skin and or, or be a better mom. Maybe the idea that there's a like a moral component to being a man, I feel like is is kind of like uh, at least from what I've seen, it, it's much stronger. Uh, than yes. it is. I think that's fascinating. Generally. What I want is for more men to kind of be aware that um, being a good man and being a decent person don't have to be 
you know, vastly different concepts, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, you know, that I think like being good, caring about others and improving the lives of those around you and sticking to what you believe in that kind of stuff is both of a piece with personhood and also not incompatible with masculinity. And I get into this a little bit in in the conclusion, like this book is not a call for you to be weak uh, or effeminate or whatever. It's a call for you to be you know, strong enough and confident enough in your masculinity to incorporate aspects of femininity or of just, you know, human personhood generally that the, the, the sort of fragile masculinity of that we're familiar with becomes more flexible and becomes more open to possibility. So, yeah, I think like what, what we need is, is a masculinity that is, yeah, not so brittle, I guess, and is not so threatened by like, you know, the concept of doing the laundry or, you know, like being a really great dad while your wife brings home the paycheck or, or, mm-hmm. or that kind of stuff, that there are ways to be strong and, uh, and proud of yourself that don't, you know, that, that aren't just like, oh, I'm the Marlboro man, or like, I work in a mine or like, you know, I'm the super powered CEO. Um, because like just the the spectrum of choices that have been available to men for a long time in our culture has just been so narrow. Yeah. And you talk about women are outpacing men in education. We've talked about that here before. Women now are better, kind of better trained for the jobs that, of the future. This book mm-hmm. is, um, it's about a roadmap for the 21st century and that we need men to be nurses. We need men to be caregivers. Mm-hmm. And these kinds of jobs take a little bit more of the what has typically been regarded as feminine I'll say it you know it's 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 the vulnerability it's the care it's the communication but we need that I think ultimately this book is about being fluid being flexible being adaptive and somewhere in there you said that acting like a man I'll put that in quotes is a choice and like in all things there's places where that really applies the classic kind of manness you know if i'm hmm. stuck down a hole i want a strong man to come and get me out of the hole you know <laughs> but then yeah. there's times when it's like yeah and when i'm sitting and tearful whatever then i want that man to be able to meet me in that place and i think women typically have been able to flex in that way and i think your hmm. call to action is men can do that too. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the 20th century taught us that women can do a lot of men's things just as well as men can, you know, and so maybe the 21st century can, can teach us that, you know, men can do women's things just as well as women can. The idea that women are better nurturers or whatever, just inherently, and men are better at math just inherently, you know, like the more we research things like that, the more we we find that that's not really true. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it might be a convenient fiction for some people, but I think most of the time it just ends up hurting people. It ends up creating these boundaries or these groups or whatever. It ends up segregating people and it ends up just shutting off like possibilities from people before they've even realized like, oh, like... You know, some of those high powered CEOs might have been like really good caregivers, you know, had uh, certain things in their life gone differently. Yeah. A part of this book is just kind of trying to open the mental doors, I guess, for people yeah. and say, you know, look, there's more here than meets the eye. Alex's book is The New Masculinity, a roadmap for a 21st century definition of manhood. And parents, if you have teenagers, young adults in your house, 
this is another good one that you can just, I don't know, leave laying out on the kitchen table, in the bathroom, random places. You know I've done this before. You know it works. Alex, where can where can our listeners find more of your writing? Um, they can find more of my writing at alexmanley.com, uh, A-L-E-X-M-A-N-L-E-Y. And the book, uh, which is coming out on May 9th, uh, will be available uh, in the traditional book selling places. Mm-hmm. So you can probably pre-order a copy right now as you're listening to this podcast. Alex, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for expanding our view about masculinity, about gender. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real treat. Again, that book is The New Masculinity by Alex Manley. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net, and I'm Janet Allison of boysalive.com.